What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Joe Bonamassa here with another exciting episode of Live from Nerdville. Today, my guest is one of the most exciting, explosive, innovative guitar players of a generation. And he's a good bloke, as I said on my Instagram. Ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only, Jared James Nichols. Thank you for doing this, my friend. Joe, it is a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, brother. This is awesome. You know, it's great because, you know, um, we have plans to hang out later and smoke cigars. Like, yes. Like, like, well, you're young and 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 in the in the prom of your life, but but you sometimes like to to come hang out with the old bitter folks like myself and just puff away and pontificate. But uh, and we're all in the same town. You're in Nashville. I'm in Nashville. But because of COVID, we actually have to socially distance and do this in 2D. But uh, thanks for being here. It's great, man. And uh, yeah, smoking cigars with you is a pleasure, man. I feel like I'm I'm like going to school. It's like I learn everything. <laughs> it's you know, you know, my, my Cuban supplies are, are running low, you know, so I'm, I'm, like, I'm, I'm rationing them, you know, because we're not going to Europe until at least another year. But uh, anyway, you know, one, one of the things that um, I've always admired about you is 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 when you play, you have this thing where I, I always call it bad intentions. You're you're a really nice guy. But when you get a guitar and an amp something you tap into this demon inside and i think all the greats do that because you know it's 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 one thing to just play and then it's another thing to play and then oh my god who the hell is that when did you discover that ability to 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 shake the ground so to speak to be honest i knew like i started playing guitar when i was 15 and right away i was always attracted to that side of guitar playing I really didn't care about, you know, trying to learn as, as many scales or as, as many things as I could. I just wanted to play guitar and almost have my personality and like just have it be like this living, awesome thing where I could just pick it up and go crazy. I remember seeing like clips of Hendrix, right? And of course, Stevie Ray Vaughan, right when I started playing. And it was a huge deal when I saw them play and the passion. And I just saw it and I said, I want to do that. And I always say I'm like a, a domesticated animal. Like when, ah. <laughs> when I'm, I'm, I'm just normal, it's all good. But then when I, when I play, it's like, this is when it means something to me. And it's like, this is the one thing in my life where I can channel all of my emotions, good, bad, ugly, and just let it all come out of the guitar. Yeah. You know, I mean, growing up in Wisconsin, East Troy, I didn't even know there was an East Troy. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I've been to West Troy, but I've never been to East Troy, you know, there it is. <laughs> and, when I go to Wisconsin and I play gigs there, especially in my formative years where we would play throughout the state, you know, um, Appleton and, you know, uh, the topography and the climate is very, very similar to upstate New York. And a lot of great guitar players have come out of, of that, that, that region. And I always attest to the, the, it, the weather, you know, it's like, what else do we have to do from September till May? You know, yes. when it's cold and rainy, you know, like who was your host when you first started? Did you come from a musical family or or was it just something you like heard some records like I want to get in on that? Uh, well, the first thing was like, of course, like uh, my mom and dad, they listened to good music. Like my dad was really into like old country, like Patsy Cline and Hank right. Williams. And then like I was hearing classic rock and like, you know, oldies at the house, like that's what my mom would listen to. But no one played music. It was the only one that played music that I didn't know was my grandpa. He was a polka drummer, believe it or not. <laughs> which, 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 you know, was the style of the time in, in Wisconsin. 
You know? Exactly, exactly. So I'm carrying the tradition. No, but um, what really sparked my interest was when I was like 14, 15, my friends were either getting into like sports, there was guys picking up guitars, there was people doing other stuff. And I remember I went to like the high school talent show. I was in seventh grade, eighth grade, and I saw like the older kids jamming Black Sabbath. They were right. playing war pigs and they all had like long hair and I was like, whoa, this is awesome. Like they're, they're playing guitars. I'd right. never truly like seen someone play guitar live like that. And it really struck a chord with me. And originally I wanted to be a drummer. I was like, man, I think drums are awesome. You know, everybody plays guitar. I don't really want to play guitar. You know, I think every band needs a great drummer. So right. I got a drum set and I had it in the house. I got it from a friend. I had it in the house for about two hours. My dad comes home from work and he walks in and he's like, no, <laughs> like we're, we're not doing this. Uh, right. <laughs> and, uh, he goes, why don't you get a guitar? You can take it with you. You know, like you can get an electric guitar. And I was like, man. So anyways, I got the guitar and instantly it was like, I'm sure you felt the same way. There was something with the guitar where like I could pick it up and I could make music right away as, as small as that was like, I played riffs, you know, and, and I was figuring it out. And it was the first thing in my life that like, when I did it, it felt right. And I was like, right. man, I'm, I'm going to keep doing this. And then I started being one of those guys that would like practice before school in the morning. And then, you know, I'd, I'd bring a guitar with me to school. And then it just got to the point where I was obsessed by, I was 16, 17, man. I was like the kid playing for like 10 hours a day, you know, just trying to soak up everything I could. Well, you know, the thing is, um, you know, a lot of a lot of kids start playing guitar and there's a crossfade from like, you know, like the parents that will go, well, you better practice, kid. I spent a lot of money on this thing. And yeah. then there's a point where it connects. And then you're like my parents were encouraging me to get out and socialize, which I, I had no interest. I just wanted to sit there, and jam along with Cream and Eric Clapton and Mountain and whoever I was listening to at the time. And, you know, what was your practice regimen as a kid? Was it, I want to learn a song or I just want to learn the instrument? How did, how did, how did that work? Well, really it came down to like, it, it was the style. Like when I found blues rock, like, like I heard Hendrix and cream, like the stuff you were saying, I yeah. remember going to like Walmart and buying all of those CDs. I was buying like best of the blues and I had, I literally had like a boom box and my crate amp and my washburn guitar right. and I would just fire it up, man, and try and play along. So that was my whole intention. I remember saying to myself, if I could play Purple Haze all the way through, I'm good. Like, I'm cool, right. you know? That's uh, all the theory you needed. Yeah. yeah. I was like, that'll do because if it works for Jimmy, it'll work for me. And really what ended up happening, though, was... I started thinking to myself, well, how does he play that? Or how does, why would Eric clap? Why would he hit this note over that? So I started to do like the street theory, right? And it's like, right. well, if I'm, if I'm playing a blues, I can hit this. And then it all just kind of like, it was like the dominoes fell. And I was like, man, I want to learn everything I can about this style, especially, you know, blues and blues rock guitar playing. Mm -hmm. And it was just one of those moments where I, People always ask, like, you know, when you're practicing, like, how did you spend so much time practicing? But probably like yourself, man, you were having a like the time of your life. Like it was so much fun. And I never thought of it as like, oh, I have to go practice. You know, I just was like, man, I'm going to go play and do what I love.
Yeah, I mean, I had a rig. I had a I had a, a small tape deck, and it I could turn it all the way up, and it was slightly distorted, which was fine, and it was just louder than this little silver tone. 1482 amp that I bought for twenty five dollars nice. and it had, had a nice amount of gain. And I would stick it under my desk and I would jam along and I would pretend I was a member of the band. So I'd play rhythm, I'd play lead, and I would kind of try to get into the headspace. Not until later in life that I realized, you know, it's like when you know, because in my band we have a lot of very schooled musicians, and they're like, you, you know, when you're playing that dominant fourth, um, you know, it's not kind of like. What are you talking about? <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, it worked for me when I was 12, and it works now. You know, I mean, like, did did you have any formal training, like, when you started to connect with the instrument? Did you go, okay, I need to kind of learn. Well, let's start with what what key I'm in, and then and then did you did you have any formal lessons or training from somebody like that? Well, yeah, I mean, I did the same thing you did. I remember being like 16 and I bought like a, a really cool, like flared up like suit coat and I slicked my hair back and I was playing uh, Freddie King, Let's Hide Away and Dance Away songs right. in the basement right. just to try and be in the moment and be like a part of it. Right. So right. I, I went through that for sure. For me, um, you know, I was very like. Uh, street theory in the beginning. I just wanted to learn the notes on the strings. And and then, of course, what key is this song in and how to play along with like a 12 bar blues and, you know, variations on that stuff. But really what was crazy is when I was 16, my mom, she said, hey, you should actually learn how to like get some theory behind all this and like right. do something like that. So she said there's a school in Boston called Berkeley mm -hmm. and they have a summer program. She's like, right. you should go there. It's like a week long. You're going to learn all this theory. It's a bunch of kids. You know, like it's like a summer camp for kids in guitar. Right. Just get out. Take yeah, you, just, get please, the amp, guitar, go. Please somewhere. leave, yeah. <laughs> so I end up at Berkeley and I do this. Um, it's called like the summer shot. And it was this week long intensive thing where I was learning all this theory and jamming. And it was awesome. And like I said, I loved it. And then the last day I was there, um, one of the teachers came up and said, Hey, you know, you're, you're pretty good. You should come and try and get a scholarship to come to school here. And I was like, okay, cool. So the last day I walked into a room and there was a bunch of teachers there and they said, Hey, can you play a G major scale? I was like, yeah, I can do that. Can you play this chord? Can you play that chord? And they asked me to read music and I was like, no, I can't do that. No. And then they, they go, Oh, just play us a song. So I played uh, Lenny by Stevie Ray. And I didn't think anything of it. I left, I went home. And then two weeks later, I got like a, a, a letter in the mail and it said, congratulations, you got like a partial scholarship. Oh, nice. Yeah. I didn't know. Yeah, yeah dude. And I, I actually saw you, at, you were there. You came and you played at the Berkeley concert hall when I was a young man. I remember that. I remember yes. that. They never asked me back because I didn't really know anything about anything. I'm like, I don't know what to teach you guys. Yeah. It's like, you know, I can, I can tell you how to turn the amp up. And I could yeah. turn, you know, tune, you know. <laughs> but the thing was, I went to Berkeley um, when I was 18. I had like stars in my eyes, like I was gonna, you know, go there and play all this guitar and and right. be this, you know, awesome musician. And I ended up at Berkeley learning, you know, um, how to do um, conducting, you know, mm -hmm. counterpoint, learning how to play keyboards. And I lasted a whole four months before right. I was, like, I was like, I can't take it, and <laughs> I left, and that was it. You know, unfortunately, I mean, like, you know, your story is not unique. I know a lot of people that 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 
very rarely do you, do you see someone go through the whole four-year program at Berkeley because if you're driven, you know, and you get enough knowledge to go, okay, now I can go do this and, 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 and really, you know, I, I know enough to, to get in a band and start my career, you know. I mean, a lot of people end up going that route, you know, unless you want to be a, a total instructor and, and, and then teach it's 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 pretty common it's a it's a pretty common um story one of the things about schooling and and being around other musicians um i always found it very valuable to play with people that are better than me and i and i've been lucky through my life that that's all i've done and because i think it's a baseline not a baseline but a baseline of <laughs> musicianship that 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 elevates your own were you finding that valuable at Berkeley where you're going, oh man, it's this guy or this, this woman's really ripping over here. I, I need to be involved. Absolutely. And I think, I think the, the coolest part about that is not only did I play with musicians that were so, so far light years ahead of where I was skill wise and just their mindset of the instrument, but it really got me to turn my ear and to say like, you know, instead of being like all blues, you know, it's gotta be Stevie Ray or die, you know, right. it's like, I was able to get away from that and like listen to other kinds of not only guitar players, but I was listening to everyone from like, you know, we were listening to like Miles Davis and, mm -hmm. and learning all that kind of jazz inflection. But then I was listening to guys like John Schofield and and hearing how those guys approach it, you know. Right. And I think that was the most healthy thing for me was understanding that there's more than just, you know, the Stevies and the Jimmies. There's this whole world of knowledge and language in and especially in electric guitar. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people might get stuck, you know, at that that first all those guys. I was lucky when I was young to, you know, be open to everything. Yeah, it's when it's when your world goes from mono to stereo. It's mm -hmm. like you have a singular focus. It's all I want to do is play blues or blues rock. And then all of a sudden you hear Mike Stern and, you know, like, you know, you, you listen to We Want Miles. And you're like, I don't know what that guy is playing, but it's cool as hell. You know, yes. did you? Did you ever go through a period, because you have a very unique technique, you don't use a guitar pick, and and did you go through a period of your playing life when this was actually, you used a pick and then you said, <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm better off without it? Absolutely. So I remember when I got my first guitar, I got like the guitar starter pack, mm -hmm. and I was holding it like a lefty. I, I just thought this is this is what feels comfortable to me. Wow. So I remember when I got that guitar, it came with a free guitar lesson. Mm -hmm. I go in the room. Uh, the guy, I'll never forget, his name's Craig Fremoth, and he had a, a Wayne, like Eddie Van Halen Bumblebee, single pickup, Floyd Rose, and I walk in, and he's tapping and doing dive bombs, and I'm just like, whoa, what? And uh, he looks at me, and he goes, dude, you're holding the guitar the wrong way. And I was like, okay. So I flip it. And I start kind of playing with my thumb. He goes, no, 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 use a pick. And then I explained to him, I was like, man, I do everything left-handed. I write with my left hand, everything. Right. So he goes, yeah, but listen, don't be a lefty guitar player. He's like, you'll never find good guitars. You're always gonna have to carry your own guitar wherever you go. Right. And, and I was just kind of like, okay. So I played with a pick for about three years. I learned with a guitar pick, but I'm telling you, man, it never felt right. I'd always like put it in my, you know, hide it and use like uh, my thumb right. and index finger. And one day it like, I don't know what happened, but like it was a combination of just like Albert King and listening to Jeff Beck 
and right. Mark Knopfler and even guys that would use like Albert Collins would use like, you know, finger picks and all that stuff. Yeah. Freddie yeah. used the finger pick and yeah. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? I just want to do this because this feels comfortable to me. There was never a point where I was like, I'm going to do this to be like a guy that doesn't use a pick or to try and be like cool with it. It was like, this just feels right. Yeah. And you know, there was a lot of people that were like, when I did the switch, they were like, man, you're never going to be a great guitar player if you don't play with it. How are you going to play fast stuff? What are you going to do? And it was just kind of like when I dropped the pick, I felt like this whole new world opened up where it was like, man, like tonally, I started caring more about what everything sounded like. Mm. It, it just opened my eyes to like the other aspects of guitar, especially that I think a lot of people don't think about is like the touch, the dynamics, like mm. the sensitivity, you know, it's tactile. The guitar is 100% tactile, you know, and, and it's it's interesting that you you're, you're you do everything left handed and you play right handed, keeping in a fine tradition of 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 left handed people who have played right handed. Gary Moore being one of them. He was mm -hmm. he was naturally left handed. BB King was naturally left handed. Did not know played. that. And 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 lesser known in the in the guitar pantheon, Len Bonamassa. My father was left handed, and my mother bought him his first guitar. And it was a right-handed guitar, and I think that was some sort of passive-aggressive, just placation of 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 the man. But then he learned how to play right. Um, one of the things that that um, I've always been impressed with is, you know, one of the, one of the things that that I think a lot of people can learn from is is your work ethic and your drive. Because it's one thing to be a great guitar player, and we live now in a very two-dimensional social media type of type of culture and we've talked about this in many cigar laden conversations <laughs> yes. and and it's one thing to be able to truncate this thing that you do into one minute videos and everybody goes oh, okay great it's another thing to get up on stage and kick ass now you've been on stage and you you've worked with people like zach wild zz top you've toured everything and you get up there and you're, you're, you're noticed. And, and that to me is a work ethic because you're driven and you really have a focus on a career and a brand, you know, tell everybody about that, that decision when you move from Wisconsin or Boston or to Los Angeles going, I'm going to, I'm going to pursue this as a, as a, as a, as a business and, and a livelihood. Yeah. That was a, that was a serious moment in my life. I remember I'd, I'd left Berkeley. Um, and I had no nothing going on. I just moved back in with my parents. I was 19 at this point, and I was mowing lawns and doing landscaping, playing right. guitar all day and night when I could, but I had to make money. So I was literally mowing lawns. And right. it was like one of those moments in my life where I was like, what am I going to do? And I remember having that talk with my mom. She walked in and I was jamming in the basement, you know, going for it. And she was just kind of like, what are you going to do with your life? <laughs> and, right. and, uh, I just said, I have to get out of this. And a lot of people feel that way about where they're from and everything, but I really felt it. I was like, I gotta get out of Southeastern Wisconsin. I'm in the cornfields here. There's no stage for me. Um, so I moved to Los Angeles when I was 21. I worked for two years, saved every penny I could, sold everything I had, sold my car, sold all of it. I rented a U-Haul. I don't know why I rented the U-Haul because all I had was a guitar, a mattress, and you know some clothes. Right. But I drove from Wisconsin all the way to Los Angeles, right to Hollywood, California, and on the corner of Carlos and Hollywood Boulevard. Ah. And yeah. Yes. 
and I got an apartment for 850 bucks a month, which was more money than I'd ever spent on anything in my life. Right. And I didn't know a soul. And I remember vividly, like the first two weeks being in California, just walking up and down, up and down Hollywood Boulevard, trying to see where people played music, what was happening. I was like in the movie when the guy gets out of the bus and he's like, right. where am I? <laughs> right. So what ended up happening though was I, I just, started going to jams. I went to uh, the Pig and Whistle open jam and I tried to meet anyone I could. Right. And uh, it was it was cool. But I guess my first real thing that I did is there was a contest uh, put on by Musicians Institute and Guitar Center and right. Guitar Magazine. And I saw the, the little flyer at Guitar Center on Sunset. And mm -hmm. it said the Les Paul Tribute Contest. When a gold top, a year supply of D'Addario strings and a feature in Guitar Player Magazine. That's like that's like that's like the the grand prize on Wheel of Fortune for for guitarists. That's so and yeah. strings. So what do I do? I and I needed a demo tape and I didn't have one. So the only guy that I'd met in Los Angeles, he had a, a computer with GarageBand. I made mm -hmm. a little demo, sent it over, dropped it off at Guitar Center. I got in the contest, and there was twenty five guys there. I remember. I walk in the back of where it was. It was in the concert hall at Musicians Institute. Yeah. And there's, I felt like I was at like a, uh, like some show where like everyone's like, like a bodybuilding show. Where everyone's pumping up in the back and like some guys playing, you know. And I'm like, oh no, where am I? There's like a You're metal right. guy. There's a flamenco guy. Right. And I remember we all drew numbers and I drew 25. I was the last to go. So I mm -hmm. sat there for like two and a half hours. Yep. You know, and making sure my guitar was in tune every three minutes and nervously warming up. Right. And I went up there and I just played over a blues. Yeah. I didn't have anything really special. And I thought to myself, I'm doomed. Why did I do this? Yeah. But I remember when I went up there, that whole mentality came up where it was like, you know, there's this, you know, like fight or flight. Like, I got to do this. I just got to put everything I have into it. And I ended up doing it. And it was cool. Like. Carl Verheyen, Michael Melinda, all these guys were judges, right. and I won. And I won the yeah. Les Paul, and I won the, the feature and all that stuff. And one of the judges there was this guy named Phil, and Phil owned a studio in Los Angeles called Swing House. Mm -hmm. He said, hey man, when can I hear your band play? I was like, dude, I don't have a band. He's like, you got any songs? I was like, no, I have nothing going on. I moved here two weeks ago. And he goes, well, find some guys and come jam at my studio. We have rehearsal rooms. So right. I found two Swedish dudes mm -hmm. in Los Angeles and we started going to this rehearsal room and that's what came to be the foundation of me starting a trio and just from literally meeting two guys, the one guy could barely speak English and I was like, Hendrix, like, and I started to play a uh, voodoo child. It was like, yeah. that was the foundation of the trio. And yeah. one thing led to another and, and every single day I woke up and I was like, I'm gonna do whatever it takes to get to the next step today that I can, you know, every day, every day for eight years, I, I did that. And, and, you know, I just keep pushing. You know, the, one of the things about that neighborhood in Hollywood, you know, between Hollywood Boulevard and the North South of Highland and Coenga, if you walk up and down those streets long enough with a gig bag or some, something that says I'm a musician, you're going to run into two Swedish guys that, <laughs> There's, it's the law of averages. It's it's like it's like it's like the the, the factory 
of, of all Southern California, you know, aspiring musicians, because that's where Musicians Institute is. It used to be GIT, and you used to read those articles about, like, you know, Paul Gilbert and, and stuff like that. And that, that's the epicenter. It's Hollywood, you know? And it's, you know, to me, that's, that's really valuable advice because a lot of people are afraid to bet on themselves initially and then throughout their careers because there's no guarantees. You didn't know how you're going to make $850 a month. I, my, my Beverly Hills adjacent apartment, when I moved to California 20 some odd years ago, it was $900 a month. And I didn't know how I was going to make the rent, you know, yeah. but you do it because there's something inside of you that says, I can't live with myself if I just sit in my parents' house in Utica, New York, or in, you know, South, Southeast Wisconsin and, and go, I'm not going anywhere and I'll be a big fish in a small pond at best, but I need to be a minnow in the, in the, in the, in the ocean and work my way from there. Well, I must say that, and you know, I'm not saying this cause I'm talking to you, but like you were a, a huge, a massive inspiration, especially when I moved to Hollywood and I, I, I looked at what, you know, I would watch what you were doing and what you did. And, you know, it was, it's awesome to see someone like you that you went through all of it. And, and for a guy like me, I would look at you and I'd be like, man, he did it. Like this guy, he made it through. It's like, how can I take some of that influence and just put it in my own, you know, my own career? Cause as you know, there's many days more than not <laughs> where, uh, you don't know if anyone's going to even show up to your gig or if yep. they're going to, you know, whatever. And I remember going to like Europe for the first time and it was like, who's going to come see us play? Yeah. You know, it's this weird feeling. It's crazy. It, the uncertainty is the worst. And I, I always tell people, and, and I thank you for the compliment. I always tell people like, listen, if I could do it, anybody can. Okay. I have a weird last name. I have an elongated jaw, kind of like <laughs> Jay Leno. Okay, I, I, I sound like Kermit the Frog and some sort of right wing radio broadcaster when I speak and then and then a half ass Paul Rogers when I sing. Uh, you know, I mean, it's like if I can do it, anybody can. It just takes some personal initiative. When did you when did you discover you could sing? Well, that came out of necessity. Uh, I remember when I got the Swedish guys, I we got in a room and, you know, when I was living in Wisconsin, of course, I'd like jam at like a blues jam and I'd sing something, but it was always like a half-assed blues, whatever, yeah. you know? And what ended up happening was when I said, I'm gonna start my own trio, just as all of my heroes have before me, it was like, well, who's gonna sing? And I just said, well, I guess I'm gonna have to sing. And man, that was a really, really big challenge for me, was starting from scratch, starting from like, what does my voice even sound like? Like. Right. You know, because you emulate as a guitar player, like with your voice, you'll emulate whoever you like, whether it be Paul Rogers or like Jimmy Dewar from Robin Trower. Like I would listen to those guys and be like, right. I want to sound like that. So I try and do that. And I remember I'd spent all that time, right? Like working on the guitar. And then it was like, now I got to work on my voice because if I can't sing anything, nothing yeah. is going to happen. Um, so yeah. I was 21. The instrumental market is the, the instrumental market is very small and it's very, very smart that you did that. You know, it's, it's interesting, you know, your influences are a lot like mine, you know, Robin Trower, James Dewar, you know, um, mountain here's, there's a band that needs to be in the rock and roll hall of fame and criminally is not, and we just lost Leslie West. And when I first saw you play, you had, you had Les Paul with a single P90. Mm -hmm. 
and you're playing these heavy, big riffs. And I go, I go, I go, someone's been listening to Leslie West. Tell me a little <laughs> bit about how important the late, I even hate to say it, but the late Leslie West was to you because he, in the pantheon of greats, I put him up there with the Beck Page and Clapton and all those guys, but he never got the recognition or at least culturally never got the recognition um, as a player that, you know, that, that the other guys did. To me, Leslie is the most important guitar player as an influence to me. The, the reason being is, yes, a lot of people will go, oh, Mississippi Queen, okay, cool, whatever. But the reality is, man, that guy was deep. He had a vocabulary. It, it's it's very rare when you hear someone that can play so like effectively, so simply, and, mm -hmm. and make everything out of something so small. I, I feel like Leslie, especially when he came out, like he was pretty groundbreaking what he was playing. Yes. And if if people would like to listen, like go back to his self-titled mountain record, right? Where it was just Leslie West. Mm -hmm. And then listen to the first mountain album, as you know, climbing. And right. it's like, whoa, like that guy just went from here to there. Like he found his sound. So when I started my trio, I was really looking for influences that weren't from Texas, where it was like, man, you know, Obviously, I love Stevie and I love that sound and, and the Strat sound. I was like, but there was this other side. It was the cream. It was obviously like that mountain. And when I heard Leslie play, I knew that's how I wanted to play, especially in a trio. Right. You know, it was it, there was this attack and there was this tone that he was getting that was so like it was just so him. But I felt like I really connected with it. I don't know why. I don't know if it's because I don't use a pick or what it is. But the sounds that he got out of like the P90, the Les Paul Jr. and the Sun Coliseum PAs, I was yep. like, that's the biggest sound I've ever heard. Yeah. And I, I've never um, thought of myself as a very technical player, especially as far as, you know, I'm going to dazzle people and wow them with what I can do on the fretboard. I felt like when I heard Leslie, I was hearing something that I that just spoke to me. And it was right. like when he played a riff or when he played this beautiful melody on theme for an imaginary Western, it was like, that's the sound I want to go for, you know? Absolutely. And that solo on that song, you know, I asked him, he played on my first solo record and I, and I knew him for about 20, almost 25 years. And I asked him about the solo and he goes, Joey, the song, Felix wrote the song in A. So I played in F sharp, sharp, F sharp. Right. I'm like, and I'm like going, oh, it's the relative minor. He goes, it's the country scale, you know, and if you listen to it, you're like, he just sticks the landing and it's so soulful. And like you said, it was so simple. Yeah, it was just devastatingly effective. And, you know, the, they just don't make guys like that anymore. You know, I mean, it's it's uh, it's 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 just the bygone era. You know, it was just so it was all feel, no pomp and circumstance. He just plugged in and played through anything. I, I think like you and I share a lot of that influence where it's like from that era of Mountain and Cream and West Bruce and Lang and mm. all of that, you know, even the taste and all of that music, they right. just don't make musicians or players like that anymore. And, you know, it's something that I really try and hold near and dear to my my heart, like that kind of attitude and that freedom with the music. Right. Talk to me about, you know, like, when you're in your parents' basement, like we all were, I was, you know, when I was a kid, I learned, I learned you have to wear rubber sole shoes because I had a cement basement. If you're going to put two amps together, 
you're going to get shocked <laughs> if you don't have if you don't ground yourself to something. Right. You know, cut from that 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 part of your life to now. And you know, did you ever imagine you'd have a Gibson guitar with your name on it, a Black Star amp with your name on it? I mean, like it must be it's surreal when they first show up at the door in the box, right? Absolutely. Um, I, I still don't, I don't believe it. And I know that might sound cheesy, but like, I never really dreamed that far. I really didn't. I mean, when those opportunities, uh, presented themselves, you know, with the, the first signature Les Paul, I did the old glory. Mm -hmm. I, I was just so thrilled and over the moon. Like I, I, I thought like yet again, I won the guitar player lottery, you know, right. I really did. Exactly. And there's not a day that goes by where I'm not thankful for that because there's, you know, there's so many great players. There's so many great guitar players that you almost feel like you did win some sort of lottery to get that. And yeah, it feels surreal. I remember the moment I played like my signature guitar for the first time. It was just like, it was like this full circle weird thing. You know what I mean? Like, right. it's hard to describe, but the only thing I could say is it, it gives you, it, it, it's the payoff. All right. those nights that and all those days and hours where, you know, you're you're working on it and you're traveling in a van and you're playing for six people in Kortrijk, uh, Belgium. And then you got to drive 12 hours to get to the blues garage and uh -huh. play over, you know, and over and, you know, where it's like you do all this stuff and you just for after a while, you, you think to yourself, like, what where does it all go and and those are the cool little moments where all of a sudden you get that validation you're like it's just wind in the sails right well right. this is cool too i got to show you this i know you've seen this joe let but, me see uh, hold on like hold on stinger. hold on let me see this is coming out this will already be aired but this guy right here i hope you can see it nice yes it's the second this is gold glory so we had old and now we right. have gold and uh, now, this what, is, yeah, what guitar was Old Glory based on? That was a Les Paul custom, correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. That you modified. Yeah. So that and, guitar, yeah, that was an older one. And when, when, why did you decide to? I mean, obviously, was that that wasn't the guitar you wanted the the, the contest, or was it was a gold top, right? No, that guitar that guitar went away as rent was due, literally. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was basically like, okay, I got this beautiful gold top and I have negative $200. So, you know, that's how that went. Right, right. Um, the overdraft was at its maximum. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, the reason I did that with the original was I was playing, you know, with my fingers. And, and at the point I was listening to Mountain like 24-7. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, man, it would be great. And obviously I love Les Paul Juniors, but I thought it'd be great to have a full-bodied Les Paul that just had a simple junior configuration. Right. And I literally ripped the neck pickup out, the toggle switch, the yeah. two knobs. Right. And it looked like all hell. It looked like a junkyard guitar, you know? Yeah. I yeah. remember that. Yeah, man. I remember being in a room rehearsing and Matt Sorum, the drummer, walked in mm -hmm. and he looked at me and he, he was listening. And then he said, what happened to your guitar? Like, <laughs> He was genuinely concerned that I didn't have enough money to finish the guitar. So did you sell the knobs to pay the rent, kid? You know, exactly. sell, I got to sell the pickup, you know, exactly. exactly. But the thing was, I I knew that there was something special about P90s. And like I said, like and, you know, they make you play different. Right. So I liked the way it was forcing me to make all the sounds and to try and get all the tone out of just that one pickup 
and a loud ass tube amp. Right. And you know, I, I have to give a shout out because you and Charlie, Charlie Daughtry are, are the, the two guys that have now gave me the vintage bug where it's like, I'd never had that before. So like, for me to have these signature guitars and based on the old glory, but then also pick up a, a, a legit junior or like old red, like a 53 Les Paul or play these guitars. It's so cool because I feel like I'm getting the whole, I get to eat the whole pie. You know what I mean? Exactly. You know, and, and you know, it, the thing about, you know, old guitars is they have, they have preordained soul in them they've had a life before you you get them so you you kind of like inherit this this dna that was um existed from somebody else you know it's and 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 you know this thing has been on stage five thousand times in smoky bars and now it's on stage with me so the new gold one which will be out now in epiphone tell the folks what's the price point on that is and um and i think it looks great i mean it, it came out really great Thank you, brother. Yeah, so this one, um, I believe the price point, I think it's six fifty or six ninety nine, something like that. Great, um, very attainable. Yeah, and it's got the uh, it's got a Seymour Duncan P ninety USA, and 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 it feels great. And uh, you know as well, Joe, you've you've done so many guitars and so many Epiphones. Like the quality of these just keeps getting better and better. And I'm I'm super proud of it. And man, I beat the absolute crap out of this thing. Right, it stays in tune. Mm -hmm. and it sounds great and it's got a, a a great growl to it and man i couldn't be more happy with the way it turned out one of the things about epiphones that i've noticed unlike unlike stuff that's either made in the u.s or by any manufacturer and i'm not just saying gibson is for some i don't know what what they do over there i probably don't want to know what they do over there <laughs> so i have some sort of plausible deniability if i'm ever called to testify um and uh, every guitar that comes out of the factory uh, for epiphone weighs either they they weigh the same the neck is identical they're very fastidious in their build quality and it's like the prototype that you sign off on and the 500 one that they make for you know who, whoever buys it it's the same guitar there's no like oh well they tweaked it for Jared and, 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 you know, he gets a special one. No, you get the same one. You know, it, cra it no cracks me up when yeah. people go, Oh man, was, so was that built in the custom shop for you? I go, no, this one literally just showed up from the, wherever they're making the Epiphones right. and I'll be on tour or whatever. And it, I'll have to get a different one to play or someone has one. And you're exactly right. It's the exact same guitar. Yeah. You just crack the box, put strings on it and go. Exactly. You know? Yep. It's, it's 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 great. Tell me about your Black Star amp because um I actually had a I actually saw one and, and I, I actually actually had a had a had a play through one. They sound great. They're wow. they're you know for, for for a high gain amp like one of my my issues with high gain amps is they they all tend to collapse after a certain point and they get buzzy and they get overly compressed. So my kryptonite is compression and gain. Right. And and yours doesn't do that. It's it's very stout and very very focused even when you crank the hell out of it and you have the game going on it's like like how involved were you in in developing that because it's a it's a it's a it's a great it's a great product thank you thanks for that and I, it's so funny to hear that you actually played through them because i'm like really you did what yeah, so it's great it's 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 cool and i had a ton to do with the development of it you know i was on tour we were in the uk and i went to the black star headquarters in northampton and i remember we played a show the night before 
I got there at about 8 a.m., you know, after a show yeah. and felt like holy hell. And I walked in this room and they had speakers and all these parts, like everything from different capacitors to tubes and different box sizes of the cabinets and everything and a big whiteboard. And they said, okay, let's make the amp. So I picked obviously everything cosmetically, but yeah. then with the sound, the, the things that I can tell you that I really did was the speaker choice, mm -hmm. the, um, the different celestians. Um, right. that was, that to me made a huge difference between like that and then the standard speaker that was coming in, you know, a typical. And then we started to, I sat there for about four or five hours just playing and we were trying to dial in what felt right, especially when it got more high gain, how do you make it not so fizzy? How, how are we going to do that? And what, what was funny was I would play and then I'd be like, uh, that's way too, that sounds horrible. Right. And the guy would be like, hold on. And he'd be like, Tsst. He'd solder something out, like he'd put in a different capacitor, yeah. like, you know, in the moment. And then they brought in this big box with resistors in it. And like I'd play and I'd go to get some sort of feedback and we'd wait until it actually worked with whatever resistor was in this box. Right. I felt like I was in a laboratory, man. Like, you know, they were like Frankensteining this amp for me. And, and it's, it's a great feeling to be able to be that intimately involved in a, in a piece of gear. So cool. And, and yet again, I feel so lucky to have had that. And we made the 212 version and they came out with a combo because the success of it was so good. And to me, like, that's crazy. And I'm just so happy that that's the way it went down. You know, um, one of the things about, you know, I, I think amplifiers are the most important thing in the chain because you can have the world's greatest guitar and a shitty amplifier. And guess what you're gonna sound like? A shitty amplifier, <laughs> yeah. you know? Conversely, you could take a $100 guitar you bought at a pawn shop, throw it through a great amp, and you'll get something out of it, you know? Um, when, you, when, you, when you play live, how, how, how cognizant are you of stage volume, or do you not give a shit like me? I don't give a shit, but mm -hmm. also, I don't know where you're at. I don't really like using monitors. Right. I don't. I like to hear the room. I, I don't like to, you know, spend this time working on playing and the tone and everything only to have a horrible monitor in front of me screaming. Yes. Yeah, ruining it. So um, I like a, a, a loud stage volume, especially when I'm playing my own shows, because then right. usually, usually no one really tells me to turn down too much. <laughs> right. And uh, I like a loud volume. I like it to have that like nice chunk to it. But Man, I don't really, like I said, I don't like monitors. Only maybe for a little vocal, but usually I like to just listen to the PA and, you know, call it there. I'm Joe, I'm such a, a simple guy when it comes to all that stuff. As, right. as long as I can hear it enough and, and feel it, I'm usually pretty good, man. When things are too right, that's when I get scared. Like, we played in Japan last year, and mm -hmm. I remember we showed up, and they had tapes. They were, like, measuring out where the microphone was going to be, you know? Mm -hmm. And it sounded like I was in this super sterile studio. And I was like, man, I don't like that I can hear everything so well. I need a little bit of grease in between, man. You know, that that, that is a testament. And that's an, another way of looking at it. That's an old school mentality because, you know, there's a lot of people that and not naming names that are they, they put all these preconditions on how they I, if I can't do it needs to be this and do that. It just harkens back to those gigs in Appleton, Wisconsin for me when we'd set up at the Moose Lodge or whatever gig yeah. that was, right? No monitor, no problem. 
you know, just sing, whatever, you know. And it's that skill set you develop early on mm -hmm. that carries you through because you never want to get into that thing. It's like, well, I, I can't do my job. I can't do my gig unless I have just just plug it and play. It's the force, you know. I mean, it's it, oh, yeah. it it's really it it it, it does it does it, that skill is, is very valuable going forward, you know. I must say, like, I even laugh at myself sometimes. I have like after anxiety, like I toured with us one Epiphone, um, two cables, and that mm -hmm. Black Star head, and we did all these festivals, and right. that's what I had. And I remember plugging that into any 412 or full stack Marshall, right. turning it all the way up, and if it broke, like I didn't have another plan. Like that's it. Right. <laughs> So thank God it went well, but afterwards I think to myself, man, you're kind of like that could have went horrible. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yes. It's funny. So, um, you know, before we wrap up here is, you know, I, I, I've been asking this question in the last couple of weeks, like what advice would you give a 20 year old Jared James Nichols? And what advice would you give a 20 year old kid who wants to be Jared James Nichols? It's, it's really, that's a simple one for me because I think about that all the time is, um, first off, music isn't a competition. Playing guitar is not any sort of sport or event where, where whatever anyone else is doing, you know, you have to be on your own path. Right. I would, I would stress that with myself. If I would have went that way from the, from the get go even more, I think I would have been potentially further along and sounding like myself. And that's part two to it, man. Right. Sound like yourself. Don't be afraid of your own influences and don't be afraid of your your natural tendencies. Right. I think I think that's something that um I, I saw firsthand is a lot of people and you know, like it's the old thing people would say, like, don't let them change you, you know, don't yeah. don't let the business it's like Yeah, with the cigar. Yeah. 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 Not like us later, but you no. know the other guys. Well, um, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. But that's the thing, like stick to the things that really make you you, especially as a as a player and a guy that, you know, let's say you really want to take it on and become a guitar player and you want to do this, you have to have your own voice and you have to have your own kind of inspiration. You know, we're not all the same and that's the beauty of it. And I get a lot of people that are like, man, I'm just not good enough to do this. Or a lot of it comes down to a confidence level where as, as long as you put in your time and you're honest with yourself and you treat people like a, a decent human would, I right. think everything can kind of work out. 100%. I mean, I remember there was a couple of years ago, I think it was at the Grammys or something like that, and, and um, uh, Joe Jonas from the Jonas Brothers, who, who loves guitar. He's a great musician and a singer. You know, and we've all been in that position, right, where you go to stick the landing and your hands just don't end up in the right spot. And, you know, when, you know in a pop context, I think you have, a, you have a, one of them big fat four bar solos and, and it just, it just, it just didn't work out and whatever. And I remember the amount of shit that he took from, I'm like, I'm like, dude, the greatest have screwed up. Okay. Of course. The greatest, you know, you could listen to Hendrix bootlegs where he just not in the same key as the rest of them. You know, it happens to everyone, you know? And one of the other things is about this genre. I remember in the mid eighties, late eighties when I was coming up and doing blues festivals and sitting in with everybody and stuff like that. And the backstage chatter was exactly the same as it is now. Only there was no social media and no platform for these idiots to, to spew, you know, 
and it, and and it was always the conversation always come up well stevie's contrived you know bb's a soulless sellout and albert king's <laughs> got three licks i'm like are you fucking kidding me but it's it's as old as the instrument itself absolutely these these, these grudges and and arguments about who's better there is nobody who's better there's no best it's just what you prefer yeah, and it always blows my mind that people would actually waste time when they could be, you know, doing anything else on this earth, you know, or practicing or becoming or doing something career-wise when they're worried about that. You know, people are actually, as you know, they they'll sit now on social media and they'll 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 take the only pleasure they have is is trying to belittle someone else's efforts. And yeah. uh, the advice I'd give to anyone young that's coming up, mm-hmm. don't ever do that because. Karma is a bitch, and what comes around goes around, and it is not a, a good foot to step with. You know, one of the things, um, the, 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 the majority of the trolls that, that, you know, I get a lot of it, um, is, you know, with, 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 with those kind of statements and arguments, those are the people, the way I look at it, those are the people who never bet on themselves and move from East Troy, Wisconsin to Los Angeles. That's and right, they, man. They read that decision and they got stuck with obligations. They had families, they had jobs, and they never followed their dream. And now they're bitter about it. And they're, they they take it out on the people who actually had the, the chutzpah, nice word, mm-hmm. um, to, to actually, <laughs> actually, you know, um, actually uh, do it. Uh, as we wrap up, tell me how Nashville's working out for you. Do you like it? I love it. Mm-hmm. I love it. The, the biggest difference is I play loud all the time mm-hmm. no one you know like it's quiet but it's right. perfect for someone like me who's like a bull in a china shop when right. i was in hollywood man i was on this little practice amp or like there was always so much going on nashville is an awesome place and i just feel like there's you know besides the covid thing or anything there's this community of of musicians and there's this awesome pool where everyone's doing their own thing yeah. And uh, to me, it's really inspiring because I've already felt like I could grow here. You know, I can grow and and make some good friends. It, it's it's a great town for music. A lot of the lifers would would say, please don't say that because there's already enough people here. And I, and I know and I know they look at people like you and I that's from California and like, oh, there's part of the problem. That's why there's all this traffic. I'm like, you've never been on the 101 northbound at five o'clock. On no. Friday. Yeah. <laughs> if you think this is traffic. Anyway, Jared, thank you for being on. You're a superstar and, and, and a great friend. And um, again, um, congrats on the new guitar and all the success you've had because it's every single bit of it is well-earned and, and deserved. Well, thank you for the influence and the inspiration. Uh, as everyone knows already, you're a superstar musician, but you're also a great dude, and I'm happy for our friendship. Well, thank you, I'm, and likewise. Ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only, the great Jared James Nichols. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, this has been Live from Nerd.